be reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. This is God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful to come to your word this morning. We know that it is powerful, and uh, we just pray that it would not only inform us, but by your spirit, transform us, transform our hearts, transform our minds, and transform our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you are distracted with worries this morning, you're not alone. According to surveys, over 40 million Americans struggle with some form of anxiety, and it seems to be getting worse. Last year, an APA poll reported that nearly 80% of Americans say that their anxiety was at least the same level as the year before, but half of those said that their anxiety had increased over the previous year. Now, Christians uh, prefer to use different words like concerned or burdened because we think they sound better than worried or anxious, but it's really the same thing. Fear is natural to all of us. Fear is not something that we have to learn. Our children have fear even before they're exposed to scary stories. Somehow, without anyone telling them, they know that they live in a world that isn't safe. There's one command in the Bible more frequently repeated than any other command. It occurs over 300 times in the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Now, when we say to someone, don't be afraid or don't be anxious, we're usually trying to encourage them. But when God says it in the scripture, it's in the imperative. In in Philippians 4, for instance, we read this command. Do not be anxious about anything. In other words, if we're anxious, we're being disobedient. In our passage this morning, Peter instructs us to cast our anxieties on God. Now, if you're like me, you have struggled with that command. I've struggled to know what it means to cast my anxiety on him. Or or as it says in the King James, cast your care upon him. How do I cast it? How do I get rid of it? How do I take the anxiety and separate it from myself in order to cast it? If I'm going into a stressful meeting, for instance, I cannot not do the meeting. I cannot say, Lord, you do the meeting. I cannot, I cannot cast my responsibility on the Lord. It can't mean that. Well, if I don't understand what it means, how can I do it? And perhaps you have struggled with this as well. We have burdens that we carry, some of them heavy, related to our health, related to our job situation, related to our relationships, our loved ones and their spiritual condition or life circumstances that cause us to worry, any number of anxieties or cares that can weigh us down. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, commands us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. What does that 
mean? Well, my prayer for us this morning is that our passage will help us understand not only what it means to cast our anxiety on him, but also how to do this practically so that we might fulfill this passage in our lives. And without this anxiety to experience, as it says in Philippians, the peace that surpasses understanding. In your outline, which you can reference in your bulletin, I've distilled four actions we can take from these two verses, and I'll be drawing upon other scriptures as well where we find teaching about this subject, and by his spirit to cast our anxiety on him. So first, in your outline, the first action we must take is to believe that he cares for you. We're told to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I think it's interesting. You might think perhaps a different attribute of God could be emphasized here. Like cast your anxieties on him because he's all powerful. He's all controlling. He's sovereign. But Peter knows that you may be convinced of his sovereignty and still not trust him. As Ed Welsh says, if I was going out of town and wanted, to, wanted someone to hold $10,000 for me, I would be most confident in the person I knew best. My ability to trust you or to not trust you is tied directly to how well I know you, how well I know your character, your intentions and purposes. The same is true with God. If we're not growing in our knowledge of him who saved us and the knowledge that he cares for you, you will struggle to believe him, to trust him, and you will succumb to anxiety. In other words, you may be convinced of his sovereignty and his control and still not trust him. So Peter chose to emphasize the compassion and care of God. It's important to believe you're not alone in the struggle. God cares for you. When I wake up at 3 a.m. because of anxiety, it's often because I feel no one's there, no one cares, I can feel alone. But that is not the case. When you feel alone like you can't tell your spouse, can't tell your roommate, can't tell anyone. Well, yes, you can. God is always there and always caring. He's not like the false gods or the Baals of the Old Testament in Elijah's day where you need to wake them up. Alistair Begg says there's never a night where we toss and turn upon our beds and hear that he has gone to sleep. Never. He is always there and always caring. I love the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of verse 7. He says, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him, for you are his personal concern. I love that. You are his personal concern. He cares for you. Remember the disciples, when they were in the boat with the storm upon them and Jesus was sleeping, they said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? You see, their assumption was that if he cared, the circumstances would be different than they were. Do you ever assume that? Do you ever think that? If he cared, he'd change my circumstances, but that's not always the case. 
We cannot judge whether he cares by the circumstances. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples after they hear that Lazarus was dead. Jesus says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. What? (laughs) Imagine what they were thinking. For our sake. Are you kidding me? If it were up to us, Lazarus would be doing fine. Everyone would be praising God for healing. So our assumption that our circumstances would be different if he cared is not a valid assumption. So we're tempted with the thought, though, and the thought is this. What if he doesn't care? And that's exactly what the enemy would want you to think, that he doesn't care. That's why Peter emphasizes his care for us. Jerry Bridges says this, because God cares for you, you can cast your anxiety on him. His care is not conditioned on our faith and our ability to cast our anxiety on him. Rather, it is because he does care for us that we can cast our anxiety on him. We must believe that he cares and there are practical things we can do in his word instructing us to help us in this believing. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus tells us to observe the birds of the air and how they're taken care of. He tells us to consider the lilies of the field And how God clothes them. Observe and consider. Let me read to you some Arthur Conan Doyle. An interchange between Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Holmes says to Watson, you see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Watson, frequently. Holmes, how often? Watson, well, some hundreds of times. Holmes, then how many are there? Watson, how many? I don't know. Holmes, quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. This illustrates the distinction between merely seeing on the one hand and observing on the other. The Lord wants us not just to see the birds and the lilies, but to observe them. Because if we actually observe the birds and consider, it will help remove our unbelief. There are over 100 billion birds in the world. It's no problem for God. Let's observe and consider that we are more valuable to God. There's a short poem to this effect, and it goes like this. Said the wildflower to the sparrow, I should really like to know. Why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the wildflower, friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father. 
such as cares for you and me. John MacArthur says, where faith begins, anxiety ends. Where anxiety begins, faith ends. When we worry, we're basically saying, God, I don't think I can trust you. And that's an affront to the person and character of God. So Jesus calls us to observe and also to consider. You know, sometimes people assume that worrying is a result of too much thinking. We might even say to one another with anxiety, you're thinking too much. But the biblical truth is that worry is actually a result of not thinking enough about the right things. Consider the lilies of the field. Observe and think about these things. Contemplate them. We're commanded throughout Scripture to think about certain things. Paul writes in in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, listen, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul provides a filter here for every thought. Is it true? Is this thought true about God and his fatherly care for me? Is it honorable? Does this thought honor God? Does it reflect that he's loving, kind, wise and powerful? Is it just? Is it what the Lord would think? Is it pure? Am I doubting God's goodness or elevating my own desires? Is it lovely? Does it flow from our affection for the Lord? Is it commendable? Is it grounded in faith? Is it excellent? Does it cause fear or courage and virtue? Is it praiseworthy? Would the Lord commend my thoughts? Do my thoughts bring him glory? You see, the Bible teaches that we can control what we think about. Not necessarily the thoughts that come into our minds, but we can control what we dwell on. Here's a sampling of passages. For you are not not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. So to set your mind isn't just thinking. It's considering, contemplating, and dwelling on the right things, the true things. This is, I find this so practical, isn't it? These are the means the Lord has ordained to help us in our unbelief and to establish firmly in our hearts and our minds this critical truth that he cares for you. Secondly, in your outline, humble yourself and depend on him. Verse 6 begins this way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This humbling is actually the main imperative of these two verses. The corollary is the casting. The New English translation captures this well. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand by casting 
all your cares on him. So casting our anxieties on him is the way we humble ourselves. Isn't that interesting? The casting is how we humble ourselves. Now this word casting means to throw something onto something or to something. They would throw a fishing net overboard onto the the sea. They would... uh, Another way it was used in the New Testament is throwing a blanket over the back of an animal. So we're not throwing our anxiety up in the air, but on him. So don't ignore your anxiety. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't burden your spouse or your kids with it. Humble yourself by casting it on God. Now here's the question. Are you going to be humble or are you going to take matters into your own hands? thinking you can control the outcome. A primary aspect of this humbling is our dependence on God. Pride says, I'm in control, it's up to me. That's where a lot of our anxiety comes from. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes writes this, if believers continue to worry, then they are caving into pride. She continues, this is well stated, I think. Worry is a form of pride, Because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all their problems in their lives, in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in his mighty hand, acknowledging acknowledging that he is Lord and sovereign over all of life. Humility says, I'm completely dependent on the Lord. When the Lord taught us to pray, he instructed us to ask for daily bread, daily bread. The point is recognizing our daily dependence on God. Remember the Exodus, the manna in the wilderness, what they ate was with the exception of the Sabbath, each was given enough for that day. Daily dependence, enough for today. The Lord is teaching us that it's critical to our relationship with God. To constantly be reminded of our dependence on him and constantly be experiencing his provision daily. Dr. A.B. Simpson said this, God doesn't give us his grace in one lump sum. That would be very dangerous for us because we would forget about God. That's true. We need to constantly be reminded of our absolute dependence on him And we need to depend on and experience God's provision one day at a time. This teaches us to keep track of the many deliverances in our lives that happen all the time. You know, one of the most um, transformational sermons I've ever preached on me personally was on the Lord's Prayer. One of the things that came out of that study that I've implemented ever since is that when I come before the Lord in the morning on my knees, I try to take nothing for granted. I thank him for the provision over the previous day. Pray for continued provision as the Lord commands, for food, shelter, the basics for myself, my family, and people in our church. Every single day. It sounds simple, maybe, but it's been transformational to me. It ingrains his faithfulness and his dependability in my mind. And it also teaches us contentment, to be content with the basics. Yesterday, he provided me with what I needed. Yet again, he's so faithful. He's so dependable. Phil Moser said this, the Christian's Excalibur against the dragon of anxiety is named contentment. 
So dependence on the Lord is contrary to pride. Pride is independence. I can do it myself. And we're born into this sinful pride, which is the enemy of dependence on God. Let me just say something to you if you're visiting this morning or maybe new to church, new to Christianity. This is really the essence of the Christian message. Humble yourself and depend on the Lord. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You're not self-sufficient. You need to understand that truth. Humble yourself and depend on his salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I remember when my oldest daughter was two to th- between two and three years old, maybe, she started to say frequently this phrase, I do myself. <laughs> Try to help her with her coat or put on her seatbelt. No, I do myself, Daddy. I do myself. Well, I do myself is a microcosm of a core issue in fallen humanity. Starting with salvation all the way to my stressful meeting next week, my biggest problem is this attitude. I do myself. So it shouldn't surprise us that humility And dependence on the Lord is foundational to overcoming anxiety. Because when we're not walking in humility, we're susceptible to this lie. If we think hard enough or try hard enough, we can control the outcome. But we cannot. Casting your anxiety on him is humbling yourself to that very reality. Ed Welsh says, listen to fear and you hear this, I am not in control. <laughs> this is so convicting. Listen to how he continues. If you listen to fear closely, you will probably detect the theme of control. Stress is saying that life is teetering on the brink, right at the farthest reaches of your ability to maintain some control. What would happen if you really lost control? You don't know, and you don't want to know. Oh, how we need to be reminded to be humble and depend on the Lord. Number three. Number three, fear and worship your mighty God. As you read in verse six, the God under whom we humble ourselves is mighty. The context here is that he is sovereign over the timing of our exaltation, it says. Now, some believe It could be right that this is referring to our ultimate exaltation at the coming of Christ, the consummation of the kingdom at the end of the age. And it's certainly true biblically that God is sovereign over that. But I think more likely this refers to the timing of relief from this particular suffering or trial that we are experiencing, which is causing our anxiety. Or as the psalmist laments, how long? Oh, Lord. Do you ever cry that out? How long, oh, Lord? God alone is sovereign over the timing of our suffering. As John MacArthur says, God will exalt believers out of their trials, tribulations, and sufferings at his wisely appointed time. The Lord is inscrutable. The Lord is sovereign over that. And his might, his majesty, his sovereignty is something that, to use an overly used word today, awesome. He is to be feared and worshipped. And to worship is also to adore and desire. He has no rival. 
One thing that will revolutionize your struggle with anxiety is to singularly worship and delight in this mighty God. The psalmist said it this way, delight yourself in the Lord. This is the theme of John Piper's classic book, Desiring God. The Lord is the treasure to be desired above all else. Sometimes we can focus too much on the benefits of being a Christian. I I struggle with this personally sometimes in our Lord's Supper. I, I find myself praising God for what he's done for me, and that's totally appropriate. But he's worthy to be praised and honored and glorified despite me, anything he's done for me. That's who he is. He's the treasure. Remember the Bible answer man on the radio, Hank Hanegraaff. I don't know if he's still on, but I remember listening to him years ago. And he would often warn against those who are coming to the king's table because they desire the things on the table instead of desiring the king himself. I think that's very insightful. This leads to other important questions. What do we treasure? What do we value? What do we worship? What do we fear? Ed Welsh says this, listen to your fears and you hear them speak about things that have personal meaning to you. They appear to be attached to things we value. I think this is a very important insight. When Jesus talks to us about worry in Matthew 6, he says, therefore, do not be anxious. So if you look before that to see what it's there for, it's not a coincidence that immediately before this, he talks about money. You cannot serve both God and money, therefore do not be anxious. And it's not just greed. It can be the safety and security of money as well. We're living in a unique, affluent society where this is exacerbated. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said something, and I, I have found this fascinating, and I think it's worthy of some deep reflection, more than what we have time here. But he said this, Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And this is what he meant by that. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. You have to understand the historical context. When a society is oppressive, okay, when freedoms are taken away, when you're in danger of losing your life, when people are under tyranny, people have a fear and anxiety about persecution and oppression and death, right? But when freedom comes to a society, it resolves that fear. But with freedom comes choices. And many choices can mean many opportunities to make the wrong choices. And this is dizzying. So freedom increases fear and anxiety related to the wrong choices and related to personal failure. Think about it. When you're concerned about your survival, you're not worried about which job offer to take. When you're uncertain if you will even make it through the week alive, You're not stressed about whether you should send your child to public school or a Christian school or homeschool. When your freedom is on the line, you're not worried about whether you should buy organic fruit or not. But with freedom, now I have all kinds of options and pressure to personally choose. What if I get it wrong? What if I make the wrong choice and we worry? Jesus' solution For this problem is to prioritize his kingdom. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking the kingdom means seeking the king and the king's priorities. Worry can reveal that you desire something more than the king. You value something more than Jesus and his priorities. And it's not always about money. If we desire comfort, we will worry about physical pain. If we desire approval from others, we will worry about being criticized. If we desire admiration for our attractiveness, we might worry about putting on weight. If we desire admiration for our parenting abilities, we will worry about our kids' performance in public. If we desire love, we will worry about rejection. Sometimes the very act of casting your cares upon the Lord changes them or exposes them as concerns about our pride and not concerns of the kingdom. Remember the great story in the Gospels about Mary and Martha. Mary was at the feet of Jesus, but Martha was distracted, concerned about many things of serving, preparing for the dinner, the logistics. I can relate to that. I've got a lot of Martha in me. But she resented the fact that Mary was just focused on Jesus. And Jesus gently rebukes Martha. In Martha's anxiety, she had forgotten the one whom she was serving. Her anxiety pointed to her pride. How many dishes, operational efficiency. She became a servant of the dinner instead of a servant of the Savior. This can happen so easily. We can take our eye off the ball. It can happen in our relationships. It can happen in our parenting. It can happen in our jobs. And like Martha shows us, it can even happen in ministry. Maybe especially in ministry. We take our eyes off of Jesus and get distracted by a great many things. Things we really desire instead of Jesus. And our anxiety points to what we really desire and what we really care about. I was in a stressful situation a number of years ago related to my job. And in hindsight, one of the things I think God was doing behind the scenes was destroying an idol that I had. And that idol was the approval of others. I wanted people at work to approve of me, to think I was competent, to think I was good at my job. And the reason the constant criticism was so stressful is because it threatened that idol. One writer says this, stress can signify that there's something on your to-do list that will be inspected by others. God was teaching me, among other things, that his approval is what matters. And that was a painful lesson to learn, certainly one I'm still learning. Sometimes it's not until we cast our anxiety on him that we realize that our concerns were connected to our self-centeredness. New Testament scholar Edmund Clowney writes this, when we cast our cares on the Lord, we often find they were concerns of our pride, not cares of his kingdom. Another writer said this, listen closely. It doesn't take much faith for me to believe that God will care for my needs and the needs of my family. My wants are what concern me. That's where the battle with anxiety must be fought. 
James speaks to this very issue in James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He says, the testing of your faith produces a steadfastness that is part of the process that makes us complete in Christ. Our sanctification, we would say. Now, if you're like me, when I'm in a stressful mess with, with seemingly no purpose, it's difficult for me to count it all joy. It's difficult to understand how this trial is any kind of a stepping stone to spiritual maturity. And it's hard for me to know what to do. I I genuinely want to view these circumstances the way James describes them. How do I do that? What I need at that moment, what you need at that moment, is wisdom. That's why James says in the next verse, if you lack wisdom, God is ready to give it to you. However, James says... Ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James is describing here is a sincerity test. We're asking for wisdom in our stressful situation, but are we being sincere about our true desires? Are we all in with God and his purposes? Or are we keeping one foot in the world? Are we straddling the fence between our desires and God's priorities? That's what double-minded means. When he says ask without doubting, he's not talking about intellectual doubt. He's talking about moral doubt, spiritual doubt. Are you double-minded? Are you half devoted to the Lord and half devoted to the world and your own desires? Are you unstable, trying to please God on the one hand, but protecting your own desires on the other? That's double-minded. James says wisdom and perspective in a trial are not given to that person. It's only given to those who are all in with God's agenda for their holiness. It's only given to those who desire Christ and his kingdom above all. Here Jesus helps us again when he taught us to pray. Don't jump right in with your requests. First, recalibrate your desires. Start with his name, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Dwell on his name, his character, his attributes, his mercies. And then plead for his kingdom to come in its fullness. His will to be done. This sets your mind right so you're not double-minded as you go into your requests. So as we've seen, is what we fear points to what we desire. But let's think about the converse of that statement for a minute. Can what we desire point to what we fear? Can our desiring God come from a proper fear of God. Can fearing his mightiness lead to desiring him? Sometimes the only thing that can dislodge a fear is a greater fear. A mother who is afraid of the water will lose that fear very quickly if her child is drowning. She'll jump right in. A man who fears a small investment might be going badly quickly forgets about the loss when he hears that his company might have to lay him off. We see this phenomenon with, the, with Jesus' disciples when they were in the storm. They were afraid 
of the wind and the waves. Then Jesus commands the storm and it's instantly calm. Something fascinating happens to the disciples. Mark 4, 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They stopped being afraid of the storm and they started to fear Jesus instead. One writer said, if you really want to fight fear, Learn to fear someone who captures your attention in such a way that all other fears suddenly seem pedestrian and unimportant. We learn here from C.S. Lewis. He embraced atheism at age 15 when he started to see religion as a chore and a duty. But his return to Christianity came through this realization that the Lord is beautiful and desirable at the same time to be feared. He was mighty. We see this in the Chronicles of Narnia among his other writings. But in a story form, he has Susan ask about Aslan the lion who represents Christ. She asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And he responds, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Paul says in Romans 11, consider the kindness and severity of God. What a powerful statement. I heard John Piper once say that. He said, if I could get my kids to understand these two truths about God, I would consider my parenting a success. The kindness and severity of God. He's so good. And he's so severe. We see both of these traits on the cross, don't we? He is our father, He's good, but he's also the Lord of the universe, and he's not to be trifled with. And yet, like Aslan, that makes him irresistibly attractive. Fear the Lord and worship him. Seek his kingdom, and soon you will be seeking after the king himself, and no longer just seeking relief from anxiety. Fourth and finally, humble yourself and obey him. Let's go back to the main imperative of our passage, which is to humble ourselves before the Lord. Another aspect of our humility before God is our obedience to his word in the way we live our lives. Pride says, I live my own way. Humility before God says, I live God's way. Obedience is something you do now. This is really important as it relates to anxiety. For me personally, This last point, and I'll try to flesh it out, has helped me personally more than any other insight from the Bible on anxiety. We obey in the present. Warriors tend to live in the future instead of now, and that's a huge problem. One writer says there's a storyline to human life that includes a past, a present, and a future. Fear spans them all. Fear can be triggered by the past, react to crises in the present, or anticipate them in the future. But listen, the preferred time zone of fear is the future. Warriors live in the what-if world of the future. What if I lose my job? What if I lose my health? What if I don't get married? What if we can't have children? What if my children are not successful? What if, what if, what if? Walking in the spirit, however, is done in the present, 
It's done here and now. Obeying the Lord is now. It's just a simple way to focus on specific ways to obey the Lord. One tip I would have is pray for and practice the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, in your life now. As we come, and I'll flesh that out in a minute, as we come to a close, let me return to the struggle we identified at the start. And if this isn't your struggle, then good on you. <laughs> this has been my struggle. There have been times in my life where I meditated on this verse, cast your anxiety on him, and I was very frustrated. I would cry out to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what this means. Cast my anxiety on you. I can't get rid of it. How? You're not going to run the meeting for me. It can't mean that. But this principle of obedience now is the biggest help for me personally. Back to Philippians 4. We see this there with Paul. As he talks about anxiety, we read in verse 9, Philippians 4, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Just do what you're supposed to do and focus on obeying God in the manner in which you do it. I mentioned the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I prayed for this fruit as I ran these meetings. I prayed for patience, kindness, gentleness with people, self-control. As I did my job and interacted with people, I focused on the only thing I could control by God's grace, how I act and how I respond. And whatever happens as a result, I left that in his hands. I casted that on him. I can't control the outcome. I'm not going to be anxious about it. What happens as a result of me practicing the fruit of the Spirit is his problem, not mine. If I'm in his will, the way he's told me to act, being obedient, pleading for, these, for this fruit, practicing the things, as Paul says, I've seen and heard, the results are truly in his hands. Casting my anxiety on him meant humbling myself as it relates to controlling the future outcome and practicing obedience in the present. Walking in step with the Spirit according to the fruit of the Spirit, casting the results of what happens on him. And this was a liberating realization for me. Many of you know the missionary Elizabeth Elliot, and I'll close with this. Her husband Jim was attacked by the Alcan Indians in Ecuador as he went there as a missionary, killed. Elizabeth went back to Ecuador to minister to her husband's killers. Talk about anxiety. And she summarized what I've been trying to articulate in this exhortation. This is what she said. Trust God and do the next thing. Very profound. Very simple. Trust God and do the next thing. When, you, when you're feeling overwhelmed, paralyzed, trust God and do the next thing. Take the ordinary steps of obedience in the context of the task right in front of you. Obey the Holy Spirit in your attitude, your actions, and do the next thing. And trust God. Cast the results in his capable hands. He cares for you. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him, for you are his personal concern.
Would you please stand with me as we close this morning? Our Father, we're so thankful that you are a caring God. You're so faithful. You're so dependable. May we continue to humble ourselves in the midst of those things that stress us out and worry us. May we humble ourselves. May we humble ourselves in obedience to your Holy Spirit and your word. May we humble ourselves in casting the results in the future on you. And Lord, for those here this morning who do not know you, they have not humbled themselves and depended on you for salvation, may they do that this morning. And may they understand the kindness and severity of God. And may they fall at his feet and worship him for Jesus' sake. Amen.